Welcome to um, our Civic Lex Digital Town Hall on the impact that COVID-19 is having on journalism. My name is Richard Young. I'm the executive director of Civic Lex, um, a civic education organization that is uh, hosting these town halls. And uh, now we're really excited to say that all these town halls are in partnership with the, with the Herald Leader. Um, so I want to lay a few ground rules before we get started. Um, I'm going to go through and mute every single person on the call, uh, except for myself. Um, if you want to say something, um, you can unmute yourself. Uh, or the best way to do it is just to leave a comment in the chat saying that you want to say something. Um, that way, it doesn't uh, jump around. So the way that um, Google Meet works is that if someone starts talking, the camera shifts from whoever is currently talking to that uh, new person. And so if a lot of people are jumping in, um, it, it, while very exciting and engaging, it uh, kind of makes people a little seasick. Um, so we're learning uh, how to navigate that in these digital town halls. Um, so I'm really, really grateful um, that Peter Baniak from the Lexington Herald Leader has agreed to join us today. Um, it's gonna be a really exciting uh, conversation about um, the sort of impact that this has had on their, um, on their everyday operations and the impact that, uh, that this is going to have on journalism, both here um, uh, at this very moment and then uh, moving forward into the future. Um, this is part of a series of town halls that we are hosting. And I do want to just lay a couple additional ground rules um, past this sort of no jumping in. Um, if, if people uh, tend to get some, you know, some, every now and then in a town hall, someone can get a little bit disrupted. Um, and so if that does happen, um, I will jump in and ask people to, um, you know, ask whoever that may be um, to, uh, you know, put their comments in the chat and we can come back to them. Um, or uh, I do have the ability to um, mute someone and eventually remove them from the chat if I need to, or remove them from the um, digital town hall uh, if I need to. Uh, the sort of order of operations uh, for, this, for this town hall is that we're going to have a few minutes um, to let Peter introduce himself. Um, and go through uh, a few questions that we have from the Civic Lex perspective. And then we're gonna actually turn it over to anyone that has a question to be able to um, talk to Peter or talk amongst ourselves about um, how this issue is playing out in the community. So it is meant to be interactive. Um, so I don't want my, uh, the rules about not jumping in to deter anyone from jumping in when it is time to do so. Um, so I guess we'll go ahead and get started with a round of introductions. The way that this has worked on previous calls um, is that we give anyone that um, that wants to say hello a chance to say hello. You can say hello in the chat, um, or you can say hello face-to-face -face because we think it's really important. Um, we're all socially isolated, so we think it's really important for us all uh, to say hello face-to-face -face, uh, if you want to. Um, so I've already introduced myself. I'm gonna ask um, Peter to introduce himself and then my two coworkers, uh, Megan and Sarah. And if you wanna say hi, just drop it in the chat um, and we'll, kick it over to you after they're all done. So Peter, do you want to introduce yourself? Sure, thanks. Um, I am Peter Baniak. I'm the editor and general manager of the uh, of the Herald Leader. Uh, I have been uh, editor since 2009. I've been general manager for, well, I guess about 18 months now um, uh, and have lived in Lexington since 1995 full time, came here as an intern uh in the early 90s uh first uh and have lived in kentucky and in lexington longer than anywhere uh after a childhood as an air force brat so i'm happy to be here um 
thrilled uh, to be working with um, and appreciative of Civic Lex for hosting these town halls and letting us work with them um, on this initiative, which I think is a useful way to help um, keep the community connected uh, throughout the month of April. And I think they have a pretty um, cool list of topics, important topics um, to talk about um, as we go forward. So uh, happy that everybody's here and I will do my best, Richard, to not be disruptive and to not have you <laughs> mute me and kick me off. Uh, you never know. I, I, will do my, I would do my best. I didn't make any guarantees. <laughs> Great. Uh, Megan and Sarah, do you want to introduce yourselves? Sure. Um, yeah. Uh, can you all, I don't know. I'm, You're I'm talking. Frozen. I'm frozen on my home screen. Sorry. My name is Megan Bella. Um, I work at Civic Lex with Richard and Sarah. Um, yeah, I've been in Lexington for about full time for about 10 years now. And this is my second year um, as of this, or my second term as of this day with Civic Lex. So really excited about this uh, town hall series that we're doing um, and talking to so many people about these issues in Lexington. Yeah, I'll hand it over to Sarah. Yeah, my name is Sarah Trapp and I am interning with Civic Lex this year for my master's in social work at UK. Great. Um... So I'm just going to go through the chat. A few people dropped in to say hello, and I'm going to give them a chance to say hello face to face if they want to. Lisa, do you want to do you want to say hello? Okay, I'm going to keep going down. Uh, Liz, would you like to say hello face to face? Okay, I'm going to keep going down. Al, Soraya, John, any of you all? Okay. Well, uh, let's go ahead and get started then. Uh, anyone else? Just going to give every, anyone else a moment to jump in and say hello. You just have to unmute yourself for that to happen. Okay. Oh, um, well, hey, Peter, uh, one thing. I haven't seen you in about seven years since you did that story on the new kind of dorms before all these EDR dorms got built. I don't know if you remember that, but... I still appreciate the above the fold uh, article that you wrote about it with Mark Cornblow. Uh, I do remember it uh, very much. Hey, Richard, um, people are saying in the chat that it won't let them unmute. I just saw that. I'm not sure um, where that issue is coming from, uh, but I apologize for it. Um, I'm not sure. Soraya says maybe it's just me, not a biggie. Okay, sorry, Soraya. You know, these digital townhouses are always a little interesting. Um, okay, so let's go ahead and um, get started with um, with a fir uh, first quick question. So, uh, Peter, on our last call, um, which you were on, um, we heard that a number of folks were grateful that you all dropped the paywall for stories related to coronavirus. Um, how did you all come to that decision? Um, so uh, we... Um, came to that decision fairly quickly, actually, as the, the first cases were confirmed in Kentucky. Um, and it was really an issue of this is vital information that people needed to know, um, vital public health information that people needed to know, needed to know quickly. Um, and so uh, very quickly arrived at, at the conclusion that it would be a good idea to go ahead and drop the paywall. I will say um, with some credit to some of our McClatchy colleagues, um, McClatchy, which is our parent company, owns also the Sacramento Bee and several papers in Washington State. 
um, which had had been covering coronavirus earlier than we had um, because they had had cases there before we did. Uh, and they had also dropped uh, the paywall. So that sort of allowed kind of for an accelerated discussion around um, doing that. It it has, you know, clearly the coverage is in huge demand. Um, our traffic numbers in terms of readership have more than doubled in the month of March. Um, uh, and so clearly people want this coverage and this information. The, the um, and you didn't ask this, but but these are challenging economic times. And so one of the questions that we're now discussing um, is how long can we keep the paywall down um, completely on that coverage? Um, and I would say probably sometime in the near future, we will slowly begin um, putting it back up in some cases. Uh, I think we will continue to keep it down on stories that are um, immediate, uh, are um, you know giving the daily updates like from the governor, uh, the daily updates from the mayor, um, things that relate to immediate kind of breaking news, public safety, public information. I think we will keep the paywall removed on those. Um, but some other stories that are maybe a less immediate impact, um, <clears throat> we will probably start to move the paywall back up on them. Uh, and it's simply a matter of economics um, at that point. Um, as many of you know, a lot of the readership or a lot of the, the businesses in town are closed. Uh, or shuttered in these times of social distancing, and many of them are among our, um, you know, key advertisers. And so they're not advertising right now. Um, and at the same time, um, kind of our other source of revenue to continue to support our journalism is um, subscriptions, digital subscriptions and print subscriptions. So just sort of what is the balance? We've had the paywall down for a month uh, on every story and piece of commentary we've written on coronavirus. And so I think we are at a time where we're gonna slowly begin to um, restore it on on some stories. Yeah, I mean, I can't imagine like how much of an increased demand there's been in in like the presence, right, of, of folks from the Herald Leader at, um, whether it's at, you know, at press conferences or um, just in, in general covering these stories. I mean, what, what has it been like on the actual day-to-day -day operations for you all? Uh, well, so I will note um, that Daniel DeRocher, uh, our political writer who has um, covered uh, a lot of uh, the governor's um, uh, press conferences and daily updates and a lot of other stories related to coronavirus, um, is on the call here. And so I may kick this over to him if we've, is the mute problem still or has that been solved? Daniel, can you unmute yourself? Uh, yeah, I got it. Hold on. There we go. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> the, uh, Dan is here. I'll let Dan introduce himself and say hello. Hi, Daniel DeRocher uh, with the Herald Leader. Um, so the question is, how has the day-to-day -day changed, right? Yeah. All right. Um, so I actually got put into, uh, I called it house arrest, uh, but a work-imposed uh, quarantine right at the beginning of this uh, because I had come in contact with someone who had been at a conference where someone tested positive. And so for me, that transition to working from home wasn't really an option uh, in the beginning. And, and so a lot of that, you know, you kind of quickly learn to adapt. Uh, the governor has been having the press conferences on, uh, you know, live streaming everything. So it's been pretty easy to do that. Um, and then, I mean, you're already making a lot of phone calls and emails and text messages as a journalist. You're just kind of you lose that that in-person touch. So when I did finally, my 14 days were up, I, I did go to the press conferences 
Um, and I did go, you know, I went to a, a UK lab to, to learn things in person because there is nothing that kind of replaces that, that in-person contact. But we're finding a little bit, you know, with these social distancing guidelines that, um, especially because we have a tight deadline with when we have to pr uh, produce our stories for the press conference, sometimes it's a little bit easier to be writing that while watching rather than be in the room. And so you're having to make this judgment call of, you know, it's important to be in the room in a press conference because you need to be able to ask the governor follow-up questions or you need to be able to ask him important questions about what's going on. But, you know, when you have other reporters there, you're, you have to kind of make this judgment call on, you know, do I need to actually be there or can I limit how many days I'm there? So I've been going about once a week rather than going every single day. And, you know, whether or not that's the right call, I don't know, but it's it's probably the safer call at this point. And it does allow me to kind of get everything up faster uh, and, and do my job a little bit quicker than if I were there in person. Yeah, well, I, I will say that that as the well, one, as the person who put Dan under house arrest um, uh, <laughs> initially, uh, I, I, I did ask him there on one of the first days if he needed anything and ended up making a delivery of bourbon and a thermometer. <laughs> The two. <laughs> I had to make sure I didn't have a temperature. <laughs> um, but it, it has changed radically how we do what we do, right? Um, and so, like, part of the balance that Dan is talking about is we want to be safe, but at the same time, when we're not there, it is more difficult to ask questions, and it's more difficult to ask follow-up questions. Um, I will say, in, in most cases, um, you know, most of our reporters, editors are working from home uh, now. Um, some of them can't. For example, visual journalists, photographers, and videographers, they can't um, because it is part of what they're doing is showing life um, as it's unfolding. And so having to work through, you know, getting them wipes to wipe down their camera gear and, and you know, looking at whether they need um, personal protective equipment and those sorts of things and making sure that we're, um, you know, practicing social distancing as we're working on stories and those sorts of things. So. Um, and the other, I think, big change for a lot of people, um, and I mentioned this very early on for those who weren't on the call, is, you know, newsrooms are a very frenetic um, place. There's a lot of people sort of, not like your typical workplace, we kind of shout at each other and joke around a lot. And, um, um, you know, the scanners, police scanners are on and um, there's a lot of things happening in a newsroom. So to not be in that environment is kind of weird um, and it's different. And so, you know, we... Um, We've got everybody communicating on Slack, uh, most people communicating on Slack, uh, and we have a few holdouts, but most people communicating on Slack. Uh, we have folks, um, you know, on Google Chat and lots of text messaging going on and, and lots more communication that way, um, like a lot of workplaces are doing. Um, and then we're also, you know, we're trying to do things. We, we had a, a coffee from afar uh, as a newsroom group on Friday morning just to, for a chance for people to say hi. Uh, and see each other, um, but it, it is a very different um, way of, of doing things. Um, the one, the other thing that I will note is that we've just been overwhelmed by like op-eds. Uh, we take a lot of submitted op-eds from people and letters to the editor, and and we are um, we've just been there's been like a tsunami of them from medical professionals and government entities and just average people and and really interesting stuff from the community. Uh, that it's been gratifying to see. And we're trying to publish as much of that as we possibly can um, as quickly as we can uh, and, and keep up with it uh, as much as we can. Peter and group, uh, uh, I think uh, the points you made about uh, 
follow-up questions is really important. Uh, yesterday, I went to the governor's press conference and I had a story, I had a question ready to ask, but when I saw he was trying to get around talking about the issue with the Lyon County nursing home, I asked a natural follow-up question to a written question that had been submitted. I think it's all the more important for journalists who are in those briefings to follow up on questions that don't get really fully answered. And and Al, this is actually something that I've noticed with these press conferences as a whole. As a whole, they've become this performance um, that the governor's doing. It's this fireside chat. He's trying to kind of create this level of calm, I guess. But because it's become a performance, it's made the role of journalist a little bit more difficult in that position, right? I'm having to tune in and out to find out where the news is because he does this this pattern. And and when you actually do get the 10 minutes of questions, because there's only four reporters in the room, you, and he's toggling back and forth between not only journalist questions, he's also taking questions from the community. He's taking a, a wide variety of written, written questions, and, and that's all in that time. And it, it's reminding me a little bit of this old era, the, the Bevan era, where you only got one question and you had to make sure that your top question was on, on the on the list and that you get it answered because you just don't know how many follow-ups you're going to ask. And you're having to make that that call in, in real time because you may be working on a story where you know this is going to be the only opportunity where you get the governor to, to jump on it because you won't be back for another week. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and I would just, uh, that sort of parlays to another sort of key difference for us right now is that a lot of things that are public meetings, um, are are not being held publicly right now. And that was an issue with covering kind of the end of the legislature, but it's happening at local governments all over the place where things are switching to this format, um, Zoom meetings or, or, or some sort of digital chat um, meeting. And it's, it, it is different than being in the room uh, in terms of trying to cover that. Um, it is, and it, you know, it, you understand, we understand why it's happening. Uh, you got to be safe. Everybody's got to be safe in this time of social distancing, but it is different. Uh, and so we are having to kind of adapt to that. And in some cases, you know, everything from a school board meeting recently about the construction project at Tate's Creek High School, where um, we wrote a story about kind of the, the limitations on public comment when the meeting is in this format as opposed to in a truly public format where people can just get up and walk to the microphone and speak that has, you know, that, that is a different thing to cover for us as well. Um, and in some ways it makes it even more critical for us to then be connected to the citizens who are there and then finding ways to try to ask follow up questions through the channels that, that we have. Um, but it, it, uh, you know, it made things like covering the end of the legislature very challenging. Um, when a lot of that is having to be done from afar, um, we're not in the room, the public is not in the room. Um, it's, it, that is a very different um, kind of way of doing public business. Um, Peter, right. the, uh, the one meeting that uh, my students and I cover uh, with regularity is the Midway City Council. And uh, they're meeting by Zoom and the mayor has agreed to uh, keep the meeting open for us to ask whatever questions we want uh, when the meeting is over. So I think that's a pretty good example to set. Uh, I agree. I know one, you know, obviously there's been a lot of reports about issues with Zoom, right, of, of people um, Zoom bombing meetings and a lot of um, sort of confidentiality issues and, and security issues around Zoom. And so I think that if city governments are going to be, um, and obviously there are a lot of equity issues with who has access to video chat and Zoom calls, right? Um, but 
so it's really interesting to think about that from the sort of civic practice angle that civic lex approaches our work of how do you ensure you know really authentic public participation in large decisions like you know the city budget coming up um you know which is going to be massively impacted by um by coronavirus and you know there are, already isn't a lot of public participation in that in the first place and so how is that going to be impacted moving forward is really uh, fascinating thought um Seems so to me there's an opportunity to to display the budget documents um uh in the uh, in the meeting i don't know yeah. exactly how they're doing that but uh uh you know there's a gap in this state between the open meetings and open records laws and that gap is that material distributed at an open meeting is not necessarily subject to the open records law. You know, we don't have any inherent right to the documents that are being uh, talked about in real time. And this might be an opportunity to uh, uh, press that question. That's a great point. Um, Peter, uh, I kind of want to want to get back to a couple other um, things about just like how this is impacting the sort of the infrastructure of the Herald Leader. Um, so you said that you're seeing obviously readership double um, and given the financial constraints of the newspaper, are you seeing um, subscribers increase as well? Do, are, is, is that sort of uh, free access converting into additional paid subscribers? So the, the simple answer is it was initially, uh, but that has slowed some. And that, yeah. that again filters into the economic question of at what point do we start raising the paywall again? Mm -hmm. um, and that's not just the case for us. I will say, um, you know, you are seeing both in Kentucky and um, and, and these discussions aren't just about the Herald Leader ever uh, in, in, because in, uh, this affects everybody in the business. Um, but, you know, this is a time when when local journalism in particular was already feeling um, economic pressures from all sides. And, um, you know, that's been going on for some time as as the transition to digital and the competition in the digital space and sort of the business model is kind of blown up and, and rebuilt. Um, McClatchy, the, the our parent company, was already in bankruptcy and had filed for bankruptcy, um, you know, uh, before COVID had ever become such a, a, a big issue. Um, so that economic pressure is real. And you've seen um, other. Um, other newspaper companies that have already announced uh, furloughs or pay cuts or uh, additional reductions in days of the week. Um, and so the economic impact of all of this is real because again, our, our, our business model is built on two things, advertising and subscriptions. Um, and so initially we did see, it was sort of as we lowered the paywall, we asked people to, to support the work through a digital subscription and we did see a positive response to that. Um, and, uh, but that has, um, slowed some in the last couple of weeks. Yeah. Um, I mean, do you, do you, uh, you know, uh, for any of us, it's hard to know what, um, you know, a, how long this is going to go on and B what the impact, uh, is going to be on our, on our organizations or even our own personal <laughs> mental health. Um, but you know, do you, are you have, do you have any signs now of what the long-term impact is of, of this is going to be on the Herald leader? Um, I don't. I think it's. It, I think part of that question is how long does this go on, and how how soon before businesses um, get back, you know, into business. Um, I think from a news perspective, um, let me let me just say I couldn't be prouder of my my crew. Uh, they have been working nonstop. Um, they have been working people like Daniel while in quarantine. <laughs> uh, uh, they have been working, you know 
nights and weekends and and the amount you know there was a um there are times where we're like okay we can't possibly digest process and write any more news today and then like four more things will happen um and i think john cheves uh who is very uh, proficient on our bluegrass politics twitter feed um opined at one point about three weeks ago it's like every hour we would be we're reporting on something that would be the biggest story of the year in any previous time. And then an hour later, we turn around and do it again. Uh, and then an hour later, you're doing it again. You know, things that are just um, so inconceivable uh, in a normal, in a normal time, you know, the, the, the day that the Derby got officially postponed, um, yeah. it, that wasn't even our third or fourth biggest story on the front page that day. That's, I mean, that's sort of, you know, that's kind of the magnitude of the news right now. And, and every day is just sort of this sprint, uh, uh, through that stuff. So, uh, the long-term impact, I don't know. I, I will say, um, the other piece of the equation that is really interesting though is, and you had already seen this conversation happening and movement in this direction, including at the Herald leader, um, about moving toward a more philanthropic model to support local journalism. Um, and looking for grant opportunities and foundation funding and different ways of doing it to add an additional way of funding beyond the two that I mentioned previously. Um, and that is really viewing journalism through the lens of a public service, right? It's, um, and so we've had good success with that um, uh, through a partnership. We were one of the first in the country to partner with Report for America, um, which is uh, puts philanthropic dollars into newsrooms to help support reporting around um, uh, news deserts, uh, gaps in coverage. And, and um, so the first one that we did was to restore a bureau in Pikeville um, with Will Wright. Uh, and we that was one of the first three Report for America positions in America. Um, this year, RFA will be placing 250 journalists in newsrooms around the country. Um, and we happened to get a second one last year, and that's Alex Aquisto. Um, we didn't know anything really at the time back last June, but it just so happened that we decided that the gap that we wanted to fill was around health reporting and public health reporting. And um, Alex uh, has been a huge uh, part of our coverage over the last month, month uh, while all of this is going on. And so that has been, um, you know, that was, she was, a, she's been a huge addition to our staff using that model um, that is sort of, that is national philanthropic support from Report for America. Um, we've been really fortunate. I think Lisa's, Lisa Atkins is on the call to have a partnership uh, and their and the support of the Bluegrass Community Foundation specifically for that health reporting position, which has been huge and enormously um, important uh, for us. And, and um, in June, we will be adding a third Report for America position uh, which is a visual journalist focused on issues in rural Kentucky. And so um, we've also, of course, then partnered with you all at Civic Lex uh, and successfully um, for initiatives not unlike this one uh, and have gotten, um, of course, the grant and support from the Facebook Journalism uh, Project uh, to help facilitate these kinds of conversations. At the time, we were, as you know, expecting those to be physical conversations in physical places and gathering people together to talk about issues in their neighborhoods and then produce journalism out of them. Um, and, you know, we've been talking about how do we convert that to this kind of format where it's a virtual conversation that leads to then journalism. Um, but I think 
the, this um, crisis, this health crisis has, has moved a lot of those conversations about philanthropic funding for journalism even more front and center than they ever have been. Uh, and you see a lot of groups like the Nine Foundation and the Linfest Institute and RFA um, and others, Facebook, Google, uh, and others sort of stepping up and saying, you know, we see a crisis in local news at a time when local news is producing more important coverage for their communities than they ever have. Uh, and, and so we want to offer some support to find creative solutions to continue that, that kind of important local community reporting. Yeah. Um, so I, I do want to uh, start to make a little bit of a move towards, um, towards get, getting some questions from, uh, from other folks on the call. So um, I have one or two more questions for Peter, and then um, we'll start to move towards more public questions. Um, so if you have a question, just go ahead and drop it in the chat um, and we can, uh, you know, we'll sort of go in order down that list. And if there's additional follow-up, we can bring you in off of mute uh, to talk face-to-face. -face. Um, so, you know, one of the things, Peter, that you and I have talked about is just how um, that, you know, there's not a, uh, the sort of understanding of how journalism uh, is created is not incredibly sophisticated, much like people's understanding of how city government works is not incredibly sophisticated. Um, what do you what do you think is one thing that folks don't understand about how you all operate? Um, and how has the how has this sort of crisis impacted that? Um, I, so I would say one of the biggest misunderstandings is in, and some of this I will admit is our own fault for not explaining it well, is that people do not understand the opinion between news, uh, the difference between news and opinion. Um, you know, newspapers have for a very long time had an opinion page and an opinion function and a strong um, editorial voice, if you will. Uh, we um, treat ours, particularly at a time like this, as a place for community discussion. Um, and a place for um, uh, for people to express their opinions and talk to each other, much like a town hall. Um, but the times when, you know, I, I got an email this morning from somebody complaining about Joel Pett, our editorial cartoonist, being biased. And my response was, yes, that is his job. He is a political cartoonist. Uh, that space is his in which to give his opinion. If you don't like his opinion, you can respond on the same editorial page. Um, you know, we, we'd be happy to take your letter or your opinion commentary. And so, but that page is different than the news pages of the newspaper where reporters are, um, are doing their best to find facts and report out the news um, and verify the truth um, and do it without expressing that opinion. And I think that the age of social media has complicated that, the age of Donald Trump has complicated that, you know, the, the accusations of fake news and all that kind of stuff um, makes all of that um, very um, much more difficult to cut through these days. And the fact that particularly like on cable TV, uh, a huge amount of news is now filtered through the lens of commentary. Um, it also makes it hard for people to distinguish between the two because so much of it comes from that direction. Um, you know, that, there is a separation. Um, we approach those two things separately. But yes, there are people um, who are at a newspaper who work on the opinion page whose job is to give their opinion um, on the news. Uh, and then there are people like Dan whose job is to find the facts uh, and tell people what's really going on and to verify that information and give people good data and good information. Uh, Dan, do you want to wait in on that one? 
Um, I think you summed it up. There, I, I mean, the one thing that I always kind of get frustrated with um, in the discussion yeah. of objectivity is that um, it's not necessarily just this side said this, this side said this, this side said this, this side said this, right? There's always, uh, you know, you always got to try and find the deeper truth. And a good example of that is uh, Eric Ayer, who I used to work with at the Gazette Mail. He just has a book out about how he kind of dug into um, pills being pushed into West Virginia. And and it's one of those, you know, the, the, the motto there was sustained outrage, that you always need to be looking out for the little guy and finding out who's kind of screwing over who. Uh, and that, that's a really good example of that, where it's like, you know, yes, the pharmaceutical companies are saying, well, our pills are fine, our pills are fine, our pills are fine. But Eric was driving to the, the root of that problem and trying to find the actual truth. And that's not biased journalism. That's just trying to get down to the, the truth of things. So just being a parrot for whatever administration is in charge is not actually doing our jobs. That's not, that is not being unbiased as some people wish that it was. <laughs> Great. Um, so, Peter, one uh, one other one other thing before we start getting into this is uh, there's this in each of these calls we try and close up this section in the same way, and um, that's a question that we feel like is is kind of getting lost in the shuffle of all of this. And we've we've touched on it briefly, but I kind of want to provide an opportunity um, for for you to weigh in a little bit more. Um, we don't really know what the future is going to hold in all of this, um, and so. When we talk about how we can build um, uh, a more informed and engaged society moving forwards, um, you know, what lessons do you feel like you've learned from this crisis um, and uh, from the, the interaction between this crisis and the Herald Leader that you feel like you can carry with you to the other side? I think it's really just, and and I hope it's it's um, something that the readers who are reading all of this coverage are also um, processing, which is just that that. Um, the critical role that local journalism plays at a time like this um, in particular that um, and that I think sometimes people forget about that. They forget, you know, that I think one of um, and, and there's been a lot of conversation about essential, right? What are essential businesses? What's allowed as, as things are being shut down across the state? What what is an essential business um, that is allowed to stay open and stay in business? And and um, I would argue strongly and have um, that that information, good information, good fact-based, solid, verified information is an essential thing right now. Um, you all have been on social media. You see, you know, buy this cure or drink this thing. It'll it'll keep coronavirus away or rumors going around about who's had it and who's spread it and where it's come from. And, um, you know, a key part of our role in all of this is to tell people is to, you know, we're doing a lot of that sort of rumor patrol kind of stuff. And you know what, some of them, some of the rumors on Facebook have been right. Uh, and, and, and I won't, the, what was the one that was the first, oh, somebody, the Walmart one. yeah, the, the first initial case in Harrison County, right? Um, the first confirmed case in Fayette County was in Harrison County. And I think the, that day after the case was announced and it was in Harrison County, somebody went on the um, the Facebook page, I think of the Cynthia Democrat or the judge executive there. I don't remember which it was. And they posted a photo of a sign in the local Walmart, like a handwritten sign um, that basically said, you know, one of their employees was out and they couldn't do a certain function. Um, and so uh, 
And it turned out that, yeah, there was a case in the Walmart in Harrison County. But it took a while to verify that piece of information that had just made its way out on Facebook. There's been a, an equal amount, if not more, stuff that is not correct out there. And again, a big part of our role is to find, is to sort of help separate what's right and what's not. Um, and, you know, and that can be little things or it can be big stuff. Like Dan uh, is maintaining what I consider to be the authoritative tracker right now of how many cases there are in Kentucky and in what counties they're in and how many fatalities there are and where they are, as well as demographic data that's up on our website. And he's updating that every day, seven days a week, multiple times a day in some cases. Um, and, you know, he's all right now. We just got North Central District. In. There you go. He's updating it right now. And, and, but he's also found cases where there are discrepancies in those numbers or, or um, you know, last week there was a case where I believe the governor um, had mentioned at one of his press conferences that a 75 year old woman from Fayette County had um, uh, had died of coronavirus. And um, we asked some questions about that. And it turns out that she was still alive. Um, and so there have been cases where cases have been attributed to certain counties. Uh, but it turns out that they weren't actually from that county. They were just in the hospital in that county. Those sorts of things, sort of sorting through what is actually um, the case and, and asking questions uh, about that stuff. And, and so I'm, I am hopeful that all the readers who are experiencing this coverage see that uh, and are kind of reconnecting with the value of that information and the value of having that information at a time like this. That's great. Um... So we have a couple questions um, that have come in uh, on the chat. If more of you all have questions, I see you on the call. I know you're here. Just drop them into the chat. Um, so uh, the, the, there are two questions that kind of go together um, from John and from Josh. And I kind of want to, um, I'll, we'll take them one at a time. So how, um, is there uh, a good understanding of, uh, or, or any, is there going to be any reporting coming out around um, how Lexington um, is planning, um, is essentially preparing for life after the pandemic. Um, I mean, I know that it's, I'm sure that it's a flood of stuff just to keep up with what's going on right now. Um, but similar to how, you know, we sort of ended that with what are we going to carry through? What, how could we start to have a conversation now about what, what's going to be happening in our communities after this is over, even if we don't know when that is? I, so I think that's a really good question. I think most of the last month has just been this flat out rush. It's been just this flat out sprint to keep up with the news as it unfolded. We are starting to have more conversations about, okay, what is what does it look like a month from now, two months from now when we when we move out of this? Um, you know, I know that I've had conversations with you and I've had conversations with Lisa in particular about, um, and this is a great setup for Thursday's town hall about yeah. about you know, the arts community has been, the public arts community, which is critical to the fabric of any community, has been brought to a screeching halt, right, um, out of this. And and there are some creative efforts to stay connected um, digitally, but, you know, we are talking about sort of how do we cover that? Uh, and, and how do we play a role in helping that arts community um, reestablish itself when, and and keep going um, at this time? And, and, you know, we have written us stories about Things that the arts community is doing to try to stay, um, um, try to stay alive in some cases, uh, and and um, I think that we have a role um, in that rebuilding, uh, if you will, uh, through our reporting. I know that that small business uh, is an issue um, in terms of what what do small businesses um, look like, and we and 
um, you know, the other thing I would say is it's not just us. There, there's all sorts of great efforts and great community reporting going on all over Kentucky. Um, and I, I, you know, I've mentioned this in a previous column, but, but, um, you know, the work that, that, that papers like the Cynthiana Democrat did, uh, when that first case in Harrison County came and they, they circulated, printed and circulated something to everyone in the, in the county. Um, there's a lot of great work being done, uh, in places uh, throughout, well, in Lexington and, and around. But I think that small business issue, what does that look like? Um, how do these restaurants, uh, you know, Lexington had built up and we had, we have a huge amount of coverage of food um, and Lexington has built up this really cool restaurant scene and that is completely on halt. Okay, what does that look like um, come the summer? Um, I think there that, that we, that media um, have a an important and constructive role to play to help you know, cover the, how do you put all of this back together when the time comes? Yeah. And just who knows when that's going to be. Dan, did you have something you wanted well, to add? Yeah. I, I mean, I think that the other level of this is, you know, the governor has said that we're going to hit our peak sometime in early May. Right. And then after we hit our peak, these restrictions that are currently in place are going to start being loosened. We're going to start seeing people filtering back into society. And it's going to be interesting to see how that reintegration looks and what businesses are able to start picking up in that period. Because, you know, when you look at Italy right now, they're talking about whether doing an antibody test to see uh, if people have antibodies and, and those people with the antibodies will be able to go back to work and then other people will have to stay home. So what will that mean for businesses as we start to see a phase in of, of these restrictions being lowered and people moving back into society? Well, and I think the healthcare infrastructure is also, I mean, that's a huge, huge question, right? Um, I think there's been tons of reporting both locally and, and statewide and nationally and internationally about how in the world did, did we walk into this so unprepared um, from a healthcare perspective. And so I think that question is also one that's looming out there and huge. And one that I'm really interested in is to see some reporting on, okay, when this starts to level out, what do you do to prevent it? from getting to this acute state again? What do you do to better prepare that healthcare infrastructure, that pen, that that infrastructure that is there to deal with epidemics and pandemics and those sorts of things? Um, I think that's a really, really critical question. So I think, and in you, you know, we're starting to see, and we've reported on, um, and so as McClatchy nationally, where you're seeing rural hospitals in particular are, are furloughing hundreds of employees because right now they, they haven't had a lot of COVID cases in those rural hospitals. And at the same time, they've suspended most elective surgeries. And so they're, they're furloughing hundreds of workers. And so what do they look like when this, this all comes out? Um, and how does this affect kind of the rural healthcare infrastructure? I mean, you've got lots of really interesting questions to ask. And again, I think we play a big role in kind of spotlighting those questions um, in terms of the response, what worked, what didn't. Uh, and preparing because, you know, a lot of the folks that you see who are familiar with these kinds of issues and pandemics basically say, you know, this is wave one. Um, and so then the question is, OK, what are we doing to prepare for wave two? Um, yeah. And uh, so uh, along with that with that question, I mean, I think you covered a lot of it, but um, I'd, I'd also be really uh, curious to hear from from Dan on this um, is what are the what are the stories right now that are being missed? Uh, because so much attention is being focused on this. I mean, everything, right? So everything's been put on pause. <laughs> like we're all coronavirus reporters right now. Uh, and so like that's things from, I mean, it was maddening, right? Normally this time of year, I'm covering the legislature. 
And it was maddening to not be able to cover the legislature the way that we normally are able to. And yes, they kind of fizzled out toward the end and they tr t started to focus more on, on a few bills. But, you know, we haven't been able to give the budget the thorough read that we probably should. We haven't been able to do a lot of the things that we normally are able to do just in, in that level of coverage. And then it's also, I mean, completely disrupted an election. And so it's going to be, you know, and granted, so my beat's politics, so you're going to hear uh, more politically skewed answers here. But, but this, you know, what happens with the election in the future, we don't know, because right now it's pushed back to June 23rd, but that could change. But also, the legislature decided to push through this uh, Senate Bill 2, which um, puts tougher restrictions on uh, on voting. And, and so to do that at a time where we don't know what's going on with these elections, you know, there's a lot to explore there. And I just, we don't have the time to do it because that's still not going to be till June 23rd. We can, we can look back at this in a little bit, but, um, you know, we, we have to focus on, on what is most pressing at hand in front of us because we still haven't hit that peak yet. Um, but there will be so many, so many stories to continue doing. This has changed the way that I think the world will operate for a little bit. And to start to see the ripple effects on all these different segments of society, this will be the story for a long, long, long time. I think that I had made, I fear that I had made Josh Douglas not off. And I think Dan, Dan mentioned Senate Bill 2 and welcome <laughs> up. So thank you, Dan. <laughs> so, um, you know, what, what, so this is, uh, I'm more... still here and, and that's painful. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what do we what do we start to do as a as a as a public right as as the sort of as the community that interacts with you all what can we start to do to help you all build the infrastructure to cover those stories right and to cover those stories moving forward as we know that this is obviously going like like Dan said going to be the story for some time to come but there are other uh, there are going to be many other stories happening um, that also need to be covered so what can we do uh, to help you all build that capacity. Um, so um, a, a lot of things. Um, one, I would say it starts with kind of valuing. I, I, I think that there, there's so much information out there in in the eco in the news ecosystem now that the lines had been so blurred between, um, and people had gotten so used to you know you just sort of see your Facebook feed that you forget um, or overlook the value of reported, verified, fact-based information and news reporting. Uh, and I think sort of seeing and reappreciating the value, you know, if you hear somebody talking about fake news, challenge that. You know, what are you talking about? What do you mean? What is that, you know, what, do you, what are you saying? Just because you don't like it doesn't mean it's not real, that it's not fact-based. So I think that, I think um, being a good consumer of news is hugely helpful. Uh, and I talk about this a lot when I talk to groups, but you know, just because you saw that thing with the amazing headline in your Facebook feed, is it true? Um, the more amazing it seems, the more likely it isn't. Although right now, as I said, we're in this amazing time where every headline is sort of more amazing and incredible and, and astounding than the next. But, um, you know, I think um, and and uh, reminding people, I see this a lot on, because of who I am. I see this a lot on my Facebook feed. When people say, "Oh, well, I can't read that because you're you're dumb paywall," this this kind of information should be free. Well, you know, journalists are paid. This is their job, uh, and their job is to to seek out information uh, and to seek out good information. And um, that is enormously time consuming and often enormously expensive work. Um, and so, I think 
you know, encouraging those you know uh, and, and to value good information uh, and realize that there is a uh, that there's an economic value to it. Um, and the other thing I would say is to support efforts. You know, the work that that Civic Lex is doing, the work that Blue Grass Community Foundation groups like Report for America um, that are supporting local news, um, finding ways to support them. Uh, and if you don't have a digital subscription, I will end with this. At least <laughs> to your local uh, uh, to your local newspaper, I, you can get one. They are um, very uh, affordable now. Um, it, it's not, uh, and, and that is a direct way of supporting news uh, and information. Um, and and we are in the process of sort of moving. We're already in the process of moving from a very advertising heavy an economic model in the news business business to a more audience heavy economic model. And that's the case for us. It's the case for smaller, smaller newspapers as well. Uh, and so I think one very simple act that people can do is to, to get a digital subscription uh, to support uh, and send a message that you support local news. And, and this might make Peter a little annoyed. I don't know, but you know, the biggest thing that limits our ability to tell more stories at some point is just the number of bodies, right? We all have a certain level of bandwidth and we all have a certain number of stories or, or things that we can pursue. So, you know, so in subscribing to your local paper, ideally <laughs> it will allow us to build up our staff to get bigger, to allow for more reporting, more people. And so the biggest, you know, the way to get more areas covered, the way to get more um, stories told is to have more people on our staff to be able to, to tell those stories. Or as my bumper sticker says, support democracy, subscribe. I also have a little elevator speech about uh, fact and opinion and social media and news media, and it's this, that in journalism, we practice a discipline of verification. That's what news media are all about. Uh, and we emphasize fact over opinion. In social media, there is no discipline and no verification, and it's mainly about opinion. And I think if more people understood that fundamental difference, we'd have a lot better country. Yeah. Here, here. Yes. Um, great. So I, I do want to um, open, open it up if there are any last questions. We have about two or three minutes left. Um, so I just, if, the, if anyone has a last uh, sort of pressing question or even just a comment, um, you know, jump in uh, on the video chat. So I'm just gonna take a quick pause if anyone has that, would like to do that. All right. Oh, well, there's, Peter, there's someone. It seems, seems to me that the challenges and Dan, uh, that the challenges are how do you, given that you don't have enough staff, how do you prioritize this to attract people like me who do subscribe to the paper, uh, to the physical paper and the digital paper? Uh, how do you how do you prioritize that? It's it's a it's a hard thing, I would imagine. And I don't know how hard you work on that or what resources you have to to establish those priorities of stories. What stories do I cover to attract the kind of subscription base that we want so the the one thing i would say it's a really good question and that is it, it is a huge question it's a central question um uh, we uh, as we move more and more to digital and, and we have seen um pretty explosive growth in our digital subscribers uh digital subscriptions as we move more and more to digital we have more data about what people are actually reading what they're interested in um and what they are um 
you know, what they respond to, what our readers respond to. Now we have to walk a fine line because there are some things, you know, there's, there's, there's popular and interesting and there's also important. And sometimes those two things do not meet. Um, and so, you know, there is news judgment um, still as part of the equation, but we do have a lot of conversations, a lot more than we ever used to about, you know, does this serve a higher public service in terms of that kind of public service reporting? Is this something that people will be interested in? Is this something that's just more procedural that maybe people won't be that interested in, uh, that we can come at it a different way and add some value to reporting about this topic rather than just, you know, telling people this committee meeting happened. Um, so we do have a lot more conversations about that. I think, um, you know, that is a really good question. It is a central question that goes to sort of, do people value local news? Um, I believe deep in my soul um, that fundamentally people do, and that times like these point out boldly why they should. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I am hopeful uh, that that will be the case. I do think that, that it is a, a really interesting question, though. Great. Um, so, uh, I want to thank you all so much for uh, joining, um, and I want to thank uh, Peter and Dan um, for being here from the Herald Leader, um, obviously. Um, I do want to just give a quick shout out that um, on Thursday uh, at 3 p.m., we're going to be having uh, another one of these uh, digital town halls focused on the impact uh, that uh, COVID-19's had on uh, arts organizations in town, um, something that Peter alluded to earlier, and actually one of our um, featured guests, uh, Allison Kaiser, uh, with Lexington Philharmonic is, um, is, is on this call um, at the moment. Um, but we're really excited about that, and I think we're going to, um, it's going to be a really, really wonderful conversation with Allison um, and Bo Liss from uh, Athens West Theater, and um, Emily Moses from the Kentucky Arts Council, and I believe we're also going to have a representative from LexArts on there as well. Um, so please tune back in uh, at 3 p.m. This uh, will be up um, on our website, um, this video uh, recording of this uh, call and Digital Town Hall will be up um, on our website, hopefully within uh, the next few hours. And um, we really encourage you to um, support the Herald Leader um, in this time. If you don't have a digital subscription, uh, get one. As you can see, um, their reporting is incredibly um, important right now. And uh, with that, I just wanna thank you all for coming. Any last words from you, Peter? Just thank you. Great. Uh, well, thank you all so much. Um, and we'll uh, let you get back to your the rest of your day. So thank you all so much for coming. Thank you. <laughs>